This is the third in a series you could almost call The Moviegoer, which are affectionate reminiscences of childhood moviegoing in Washington, D.C. in the early 1960s. And we began by the monster movie Saturday matinees at the Calvert Theater, where today the Calvert Liquor Store is. And we then moved to going downtown on Saturday afternoons to see Edgar Allan Poe movies and others at the Lowe's Palace, the Lowe's Capitol and R.K. O'Keefe's. And now uh, I finish uh, this series with a turning that occurred uh, roughly when uh, I was 12 and 13 and was accompanied by a close friend of mine at the time who followed through this interest very directly, though he was at boarding school for most of this period. Uh, Around age 12 and 13, but not much more than that, 12, 13, and 14, when we discovered the world of foreign movies and of the art film. Now, at the time, I cannot tell you how new and fresh and unusual the serious art film, uh, we would have just called it the foreign movie, was to us who were 12 and 13 years old. And I don't think we knew anyone who shared the interest whatsoever. It wasn't cool. I believe the uh, Orson Welles Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts was the only place that I soon learned about a little bit later on, where this interest was strong in a college town. But in 1962, 63, and 64, uh, what happened was that uh, we sort of got the idea, initially I did from my mother, that there were some movies that were made overseas that would really have something to teach even a young kid. And the way this uh, began is uh, uh, a trip uh, one Saturday afternoon, and in this case I could walk the the relatively short distance from... uh, from Georgetown down M Street across the bridge, past the Catholic Church on the right with the blue uh, modern glass, which is still there, and down about a block or two, long blocks to Washington Circle, around Washington Circle, and just beyond the circle, though the place is no longer there, it's now office buildings on the north side of Pennsylvania Avenue, was a movie theater, which had been there since the 1920s or early 30s, as it turns out. I've only seen one photograph of it, but it's of it as it actually was, although the photograph was taken in the 1930s. This movie was called The Circle Theater. And on Saturday afternoons, for years, they were the only place around that would have foreign movies that were usually of of the kind that would have played uh, at the Thalia or the Regency um, in New York City. And today, you basically have to go to a film society or to, of course, the Museum of Modern Art, and they're all in the Criterion Collection. But this is long before that, uh, when these were just creeping in. Jack Kerouac talks about his earliest times going to a movie theater that just showed French movies in the late 40s, early 50s, mid 50s. So they hit me uh, when I was about 12 years old at the Circle Theater. And once the bug was given, every Saturday afternoon I'd be down at the Circle. And then on vacations and at other points, my friend Lloyd Fonville would join me, sometimes others, but usually and often it was just me, again, the little kid who's now uh, still loves monster movies, but is graduating. Uh, Not because of puberty, but because of a, a tremendous interest in in the quality and the newness of this fascinating exotic material. Well, uh, it began with a Saturday afternoon to see the battleship Potemkin, Sergei Eisenstein's amazing movie from the uh, early uh, period of the Russian Revolution. Now, what you'd do is you'd walk down uh, to a 115, usually show, 
It was only on Saturdays, but I'm sure they showed Sunday afternoons and Friday nights, but there'd be almost no one in the theater at a 115 on a Saturday afternoon. And it became famous for those who know about this place because of the odd characters that presided. You took your ticket from a nice uh, young woman or not so young woman at the little uh, glass booth, and then you walked in. And first, you were confronted directly. There wasn't a long Art Deco entrance, as in the Calvert Theater, or a long, sublime Robert Adam Georgian Baroque uh, uh, place, as in the downtown theaters. But it was a simple lobby, <clears throat> very simple. And you'd walk in, and there was a candy stand there. And you'd get jujubes or jujifruits or uh, <laughs> all the different zag nuts, all the usual things you bought. They were always overpriced, but... You did it, and uh, what was striking, and others have confirmed this, there was a, a a midget who was always there. She had a kind of a of a ladder, or a kind of a or a long stepping a stair step that she would be standing on behind the uh, behind the candy uh, stand, and she would sell you your candies. And she was a midget, and that, of course, because of Ingmar Bergman and because of the use of midgets, especially in circus movies, and in our case, uh, his movie *The Silence*, the artistic European use of uh, small people to make odd, bizarre points, which was very common in these movies of this sort. We thought this was amazing that this woman would be the one to serve us. And then you'd get to take your ticket and you'd give it to the fella. And the fella that took the ticket, he was always the same guy, was this long tall, gaunt, European-looking, dark, Italian-looking or Romanian-looking man who we immediately thought of as kind of a vampire-type character who would uh, shaven but with yellow face and dark visage and would take your uh, ticket and down you'd go. And in this case, we no longer sat in the front row. We'd sit about a third of the way up because these were not movies with shock effect. They're movies you sort of had to concentrate on because they were in Russian or Italian or in French. Well, let me tell you what it was like seeing the battleship Potemkin. It's sort of a bridge movie for me because it's the first movie I saw at the theater there or the first one that I remember. And if you've ever seen it, it's an amazing, wonderful movie about a about a, uh, uh, what was it, 1905 or was it 1912, but it was an abortive an abortive episode in the pre-revolutionary Russia when uh, sailors, uh, mutinous sailors, took over a battleship named the Potemkin and staged uh, a battle, and it all had to do with meat that was full of uh, maggots. And again, that was the one part that has continuity with the old littler Paul. Now he's 12 and 13, before he was 9, 10, and 11, but they're maggots that Eisenstein plays upon on this the meat that these poor sailors are served and then there's but but it was the first time we ever we learned what montage was we looked up some books parker tyler meant a great deal to us or vladimir nizny we looked up these books at funny bookstores on occasional trips to new york city where there was a movie bookstore and you'd learn about the things like editing and uh, uh eisenstein's sort of uh, invention of the kind of editing that he did although dw griffith had of course predated him but we were historians but we were beginning to put this into a little bit of intellectual categories, trying to understand it uh, in terms of theory just a little bit. And it was very clear that something very unusual was going on in the editing of the battleship Potemkin, even though it's a silent movie. And then there's the Odessa step sequence when, uh, that's what it's called, when the people of the town gather to applaud and uh, the uh, the sailors who've taken over the battleship in the harbor. But then the czar's goose-stepping soldiers come and shoot them all down. And there's the very celebrated 
the sequence where a, a man has eye, blood gushing out of his eye, which we thought, you know, that's the continuity with the earlier Paul. And then the poor woman who loses her glasses, the older lady, and the close-up of her being shot. And then the, the thing that moved everyone, the baby carriage with the little baby, the mother is shot, and then the baby carriage... Uh, uh, clickety-clacks down the great Odessa steps, which are still there. Our friend Robin Anderson was recently in Odessa, and the Odessa steps are still there, the real Odessa steps, although uh, I don't know if it was shot on a soundstage or not. Whatever it was, it was incredibly effective as the Tsar's troops, the reactionary imperialist, uh, quote, almost fascist troops come and destroy the sympathetic crowd. And it's a moving, wonderful movie, but we discovered montage, and we discovered something that was very new and very fresh, and that made a vast uh, a vast impression so from then on week after week I would go down if my friend Lloyd were in town from from vacations from his uh, boarding school then we would go together unfailingly and occasionally my friend Bill Bowman would go but he was getting into rock and roll and more seriously into music and the blues at that point, and I was getting into these art films, but at least there was Lloyd. I could write him a letter and talk about things, and my mother was interested, which was great, and uh, we had these movies. But basically, it was one young man, uh, pre again, no older than 14, more like 12 and 13, for whom these movies had a walloping impact. Let me give you some other examples. Um, because of Eisenstein became a name to reckon with, I decided to see anything that had the name Sergei Eisenstein on it. I had actually seen, by a remarkable chance and recommendation of my mother in New York about a year earlier, the film uh, um, Alexander Nevsky, which knocked me flat because I thought of Henry V, that it was that grand battle scene, that, that Prokofiev music, and I really liked it. Plus, it had a slightly gothic feel with those helmets, those amazing helmets on the German knights, and then the the little gnomish foot soldiers of the German army, and that struck me. But I did immediately go see Ivan the Terrible Part too. But here the child is still in dialogue with the rest of it. And what I remember from Ivan the Terrible Part 1, which is extremely boring, it is a long, long sound Russian film with Nikolai Cherkasov. And it's, uh, I guess it's very good, and I wanted to like it so much, but it's very ponderous. It has one scene, a battle scene, when... All these cannons on a outdoor, uh, all these cannons on the walls of a great besieged city go off, bang, 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 and that was striking. But the real reason you go to see Ivan the Terrible Part One and Two is because of Part Two, because here the genius Eisenstein actually did his only uh, uh, film work in Technicolor. He got some, what to us looks like relatively cheap, technicolor film stock and filmed a long section in Ivan the Terrible Part Two in, uh, in technicolor. And film historians have written ad nauseum about this particular thing. But it was cool and neat. And all these Cossack, you know, these guys with these fur hats, what were they called? Borskis or the word for the uh, Borskoy, the, the word for the uh, aristocrats and the church and the, all the Byzantine maneuvering to kill this and that and the other thing. It's uh, all there, and uh, I remember thinking, well, that's pretty cool, the uh, the Technicolor. But then uh, we come to a movie that made a massive impact, as much as anything I'd ever seen at the time. 
and it directed the course of my whole future of uh, of of uh, inner life in relation to movies. Uh, they showed one afternoon the Four Hundred Blows. Now I'd been to uh, actually uh, on basis I I went to France uh, just two years after seeing the Four Hundred Blows, and it was just like it was. Uh, Nineteen sixty five, nineteen sixty six, Paris turned out to be just like it was in Francois Truffaut's movies, and we now because we knew French, we talked about the Nouvelle Vague, and we weren't pretentious because we were kids, and we were. 13 years old and these movies were coming into us with our newfound French and everything. But The 400 Blows by Francois Truffaut is an amazing film. Now, a lot of people see it today and they want to talk all about the various uh, effects that were drawn from silent movies that were put into kind of realistic scripts about troubled French youngsters and so forth and so on and uh, a, a very odd and unusual eclectic use of, of, of tricks in the camera all of which I fully acknowledge uh, there's no question about it. But but for still a kid, the 400 blows was a little different than that. What struck you about the 400 blows and what you remembered forever after are three things. You remembered the scene of uh, Jean-Pierre Léo, the actor play, who played uh, the character Antoine Douanel. He and his little boyfriend, they're sort of 13... 12 going on 13, our age kids, running all over Paris and sometimes getting into trouble. And there was this beautiful music as they would scamper down the stairs in beautiful Paris in black and white photography, but with excellent lighting and really artistic, lyrical, that's the right word for it. We loved it. These kids gallivanting all over Paris on their own. It struck us with adventure. And there was music. I think the composer is named Georges Delarue. And his score for 400 Blows is very unpompous and not at all imposing or pushy. But uh, the background, I remember the music with what sounded like a vibraphone as the boys went around, and it touched us deeply, this picture of these two little boys wandering all over Paris. They really weren't not up to any good. They were perfectly normal kids, but then, of course, they it gets a little nasty, and I think they rob somebody or do something they shouldn't do. But it really touched us. And the second thing that made a huge impact is at one point... The mother and father are not bad. The mother and father are, sort of don't know what's going on with their kid, and they've got their own problems, and I think she's very self-involved, and she may even have a lover, as I remember, but I've seen it only back then. But uh, at one point, she's cooking in the kitchen, this little tiny kitchen of these poor Parisian people, and the husband comes up to her behind her, and gives her the most earthy embrace. I mean, for us, it was like, what? This incredibly earthy embrace from behind that just, you know, she likes. She's obviously, it, it pleases her. And, uh... <clears throat> I, Lloyd and I, I mean, you know, at this point we were beginning to think in girl terms and uh, our blood pressure just went up. Can you imagine someone doing that? Wouldn't that be the coolest thing? My God, that's this wonderful. But it was a little bit too hot to handle this earthy embrace that the husband gives his wife, which is utterly natural and conjugal. And there we are. But whoa, that that was a bit of a shock. Um, but I remembered it. And then the other thing that we remembered at the last, the very, um, uh, very sad thing, this kid is not understood and he has this kind of Freudian encounter with a beautiful young woman psychologist when he's in reform school and he runs away. Like that scene in The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner, it touches that kind of vibe. And he runs away from the, from the reform school and he uh, runs, turns out it's up by the sea, and he runs over the sand dunes until he gets right up to where the sea is and he can't go any further. And the camera sees him, looks at him as he's standing there looking out to the Atlantic Ocean and he's run away from the, uh, he's in a basically a, a, a box canyon of life. It's a bad, sad situation for this 14-year-old boy who's got our sympathy and the camera freeze frames on him. The camera just stops. 
And you look at this this bewildered, dear but bewildered young young boy, who's just in a terrible place, and it, the camera just freezes. And that was historically important in the history of cinema. But all I knew is that it worked. I was very struck, even as a thirteen year old kid. That was amazing. Uh, uh, not the next week, it wasn't a week went by that they showed Jules et Jim. Um, I always was mad at my friend Lloyd because he, for some reason or another, he was able to see uh, shoot the piano player with Charles Aznavour one Saturday when I was away or at a, away at our farm in Maryland or something and didn't see it. And I was always uh, so uh, envious that he'd been able to see it. But we did see Jules and Jim, which is another you know amazing Truffaut film, which I really... Uh, don't understand, didn't understand it, and today it's about a love triangle with a highly seductive, beautiful, and extremely enchanting woman who has a, a Oscar Werner plays her sort of German blood boyfriend, but she's got another Parisian boyfriend, and she plays them off against each other. But it's full of all these tricks, and they're running all over Paris and painting themselves with mustaches, and there's all sorts of freeze frame and dissolves and wipes and all these various techniques that we associated with silent films that we'd never seen before. But what I remember about Jules and Jim was her. I remember the beautiful Jeanne Moreau. I mean, I was there. I mean, I, I was, she was like, whoa, she is really, she's a reason to come see this film. And secondly, um, the beautiful music. I think it was by Georges Delarue also. This beautiful da-da-da-da-da and then later on in Paris I got the uh, the Bande Originale du Film the soundtrack album of it and a French 45 you know those European 45s that used to have two songs on each side so they were more like extended 78s and they were just wonderful well Jules and Jim <clears throat> also made an impression because of Jean Moreau and, but, but 400 Blows touched us uh, very deeply I could go on and on but I want to make just a couple more. Um, everybody had told me, uh, and again, what's uh, amazing is that we were very young. We were no one knew, knew about this. No one told us about this. No one, if they did, and I'm sure there were colonies and colonies of people who knew about all this stuff. But we'd never heard any of it. We had no. We were just kids, young kids who were fresh from horror films, for whom these movies seemed to be a whole step up to a whole another world of unconscious and conscious beauty. They always said uh, to us that we had to see The Children of Paradise, Les Enfants du Paradis, a long, long film that had been filmed during the German occupation of Paris. And it was Marcel Carnet, and it was very deep about showbiz as a massive metaphor, and lost love, and regained love, and finally lost love, and huge crowds of people swallowing up a poor lover who's missing, who loses the girl in a great crowd, and the eternal vista of the ever-repeating comic um, parade of, of living and loss and uh, affirmation and uh, sadness and uh, I saw this movie which is like about two and a half hours long and it's in French and it's of course subtitles but it was something and there was almost nobody in the theater and I just remember saying you know I'm not quite sure I'm ready for this either this movie is terrible and boring and too complicated or I'm or or I just am not into uh, the French theater of the 1830s. I just, uh, you know, uh, it just didn't get me. I was impressed by an actress called Arletti, who uh, <laughs> Parker Tyler had mentioned in his review that um, 
Arletti had a very small breasts. I, I didn't even quite know what to make of that. I mean, again, we were really very young, but it sounded interesting, and I kept looking, because there's one scene where she comes down in kind of a shift, and I kept thinking and looking, was Parker Tyler right about that? I, that was another question I was left with. But basically, I left that movie saying, this is not, uh, um, you know, I'd already seen Sous les Toits de Paris, all trying to make sure that we love French movies, and it just didn't, unlike Jack Kerouac, it didn't do the trick for me, although Truffaut definitely Definitely did. The 400 Blows changed my life. Then there are other uh, genres here. Um, we did, uh, I did see Jean Cocteau's uh, a version of 1950 or 1949 of Orpheus, which is amazing. And that had a little continuity of the horror side because, as you remember in the story, but in this particularly beautifully formed, uh, filmed uh, um, uh, version of Orpheus, he, the young poet, uh, goes into the underworld and he has to go through a uh, he has to go through a kind of mirror that's done with glass. It was very traditional special effects, and it struck me as being very true. It was very powerful as he went through this glass mirror like water, and then he was in the underworld, and he had to go through a kind of bombed-out landscape, and there's this woman sitting there who I think it turns out is actually Jean Cocteau, made up as an old lady who sort of represents something like eternity, and uh, that was very, and he sort of tiptoes past her in this burned-out landscape, and he can only go down one very narrow path, and finally he does find uh, Eurydice and returns her and then is killed by motorcyclists who are dressed up almost like in the wild one, like alien outer space twilight zone motorcyclists. So the combination of the glass uh, entrance into the Hades, this strange old lady, this bombed out landscape, beautiful music, a woman with a face that had a mask, as I remember, and uh, these motorcyclists who are all like characters in a, they're all like teddy boys, um, but they are the elements of no good. Uh, that movie struck us, and then there was after it La Belle et la Bette, Beauty and the Beast, which had a bit of the same magic. I'd been prepared for that because of Parker Tyler. I, I'm sitting right here with my edition of Parker Tyler that I got in, you know, 1962, and uh, it had all these early, uh, with a lot, a lot of mistakes in it because we didn't have videos or DVDs or anything like that. So you were going completely on memory, or occasionally you'd see something twice because you saw it was being put on again, and so you'd run down to see it and you'd take notes. But Orpheus, which I saw twice, made a huge impression. So French cinema had an, had an impact. Grand Illusion uh, and Règle du Jeu. Saw them in a double bill. Give me a break. Are you kidding? I'm 12 years old, or maybe close to 13. Maybe it's the fall of my 13th year on this earth. And I go to see Grand Illusion, Grand Illusion, with Joseph von Sternberg and Rules of the Game. And uh, uh, these two movies are, I just couldn't, I couldn't make Heidner hair out of them. I mean, I knew they were so great and they were supposed to be so powerful. But they just, I'm sure they were way too adult for me, but I got nothing out of them. Orpheus for me, the 400 blows about kids, I can identify with that, and Battleship Potemkin, at least that has, you know, that has a scene with some blood. Isn't it funny how you see how the, the sort of little boy and the older person come together? But I'm sure you're just like that. Can't you see an interest that you've had uh, uh, with uh, something that was childhood that touched a tremendous nerve that you don't even understand now, but it carried on in new forms, a new gestalt? Delta. You see this? I'll give you two final examples and then I'm finished. Uh, I saw Open City, 
Again, Parker Tyler said that was really something with Anna Magnani, and that was the birth of Italian neorealism. And I had read in this book that I'd gotten in New York that that uh, that there were, that Rossellini had filmed certain of the dark sections at the very beginning of German soldiers, actually while the Germans were still there. That he'd actually filmed just a couple uh, scenes there with a, a nighttime uh, bad film to show the real Germans as they really were. So it was like a newsreel, and I was looking so carefully for those scenes, and I remember too, there were two shots that sort of met that description, but most of it, as you know, is a, it's a story about the resistance and the twilight days of the um, of the German occupation of, uh, of Rome, and it's an amazing story with huge religious, uh, wonderful Christian, uh, more than a subtext, because the hero finally is a priest. Uh, he is definitely the hero, and both grace, forgiveness, understanding, providence, it all comes together. But none of that I really saw at the time, except I did notice the, I noticed then that the priest was killed at the end, and that struck me as terrible. I was very upset when the priest was killed. I was very touched and rather horrified by the torch with the the blowtorch scene of the of the uh, of the uh, man uh, being tortured in the other room of the sort of bordello like seraglio pleasure room hung with red uh, velvet of the of the of the SS, uh, I couldn't quite understand the geography of the concluding scenes, but I knew that the priest giving his life was powerful. That made an impact on me, and the fact that he had a kind of understanding with the communist atheists that also made it had an impact. I got that, and I got the fact that it was there was an urgency in the filming. I thought that the scene of the ambush of the German uh, sort of convoy seemed very fakey to me. It seemed like it they were they were refilming something very real that had happened, but it just struck me as like a lot of uh, middle-aged guys uh, who looked really cold uh, dashing around a sand pit with uh, with uh, fake rifles. It didn't have any verisimilitude, although the rest of the movie definitely did. And, and it struck me, I did remember that this is something interesting. They're trying to show reality as it is, and there's definitely something to it. But it took me many years to uh, be able later to see the, the depth, the, the genuine depth of uh, Open City, the sermonic depth and the freedom of that movie and the true tragedy of it and the wonderful Renzo Rossellini music, all of which was lost to me. But nonetheless, my imagination was touched by the possibility of trying to do something as it really was. Well, I'll finish. I saw Carnival in Flanders there. Oh, I saw Limitless, uh, Limitless movies. You could just, the entire history of foreign film, all of Ingmar Bergman, my gosh, the first real nudity we ever saw in a film. Lloyd and I together saw The Silence, and there's a scene with Gunnel Lindblom with actual um, nudity that was a, an absolute new thing. Uh, we, we, we were, that, that, that I think sort of put the, put paid on the interest. We, we were moving in a whole nother, we were sensitive to new things, and I remember thinking, God, Lee, I, I don't even, I can't handle it. I, I just could not handle that particular scene, although by today's standards, it's absolutely nothing. But be that as it may, at the time, it had a, a huge impact. And of course, from then on, we remained uh, foreign film enthusiasts, and then we discovered many, many things which have issued in many, many things. But I'll conclude by the uh, remarkable memory of seeing Black Orpheus there. Black Orpheus is a, a film by a, a French uh, film director who... Uh, 
um, I think, uh, who, who, uh, the son of a famous other French artist, who filmed a uh, telling in Technicolor of the Orpheus and Eurydice myth in uh, during um, uh, Carnival time in uh, Rio, and uh, the Carnival in which an entirely uh, black cast in Rio uh, during the Carnival, the young poet who's also a bus conductor. Uh, um, falls in love with Eurydice, a beautiful, innocent, lovely girl. They have a lovely and touching affair, and death comes for her and takes her, and he must go down to the underworld to the tunes of uh, of uh, the, uh, the the tunes of uh, uh, the uh, what was his name Astrid Gilberto Getz and Gilberto and. I've got that wrong, but uh, Jobin, that's right, Antonio Jobin, this music that spurred all sorts of dance music crazes buck up in America, but he goes to find her. And he uh, he has to, that spurred a little bit of the supernatural. He goes to hell to find her with these incredible shots of great bureaucratic staircases, which ends in, in end in a bright red. Uh, what was magical about Black Orpheus was it opened up a whole world. It created a, an imaginative world, this this Greek mythology, which we knew and loved, the the carnival in Rio, an entirely different ethos, this remarkable, wonderful music, sumptuously filmed with these great floats and dancers and all their their uh, continental 18th century costumes that were so broad and so lurid, that's not the right word, brilliant. And at one point during uh, the carnival, sort of halfway through it, we sort of, what is this? What is this carnival thing? What is this music? We don't really like this music. This isn't the Beatles. This isn't even the animals. This is some kind of uh, strange music that is way too percussive. But we kept watching, and then about halfway through, that you see a float with a gigantic crescent moon, a gigantic sort of man-on-the-moon crescent moon made out of tra- bright, bright silver blue with a smile on its face. A gigantic crescent moon is on a float being carried through this vast crowd of people with all these uh, people costumed in bright yellows, oranges, reds, and blues, and you see it in greens, and something about that shot <gasps> I have, my association is to somehow to 2001 which sort of opened the same door later on just a few years later 2001 <gasps> this shot this incredible technicolor shot of this half moon uh, uh, float and I turned to Lord he turned to me we didn't say a word but we knew instantaneously that this was extremely wonderful this was a fascinating wonderful uh, thing uh, which uh, we could uh, never ever uh, hope to, uh, to 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 finish with, as that uh, float went by, and then the movie ends so powerfully and so sadly, and yet with that a photograph after the the couple they finally come together before she is dragged away to Hades, and the camera pans up to see these beautiful beautiful uh, um, clouds and the sunset, and you hear him singing. La da, la da da da, da da, la da, da 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 da, da da, la da 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 da, etc., etc. And uh, uh, to me, uh, the chapter on childlike movie going concludes with that image, uh, that pan, that song, that moon, that luster, that star, that beauty, that. Uh, passionate use of color uh, that I associate with seeing these movies at the Circle Theater now no longer. May she rest in peace. Uh, 
the Circle Theater in Washington, D.C., and culminating with this viewing of Black Orpheus. Thank you for hearing me out. I hope this has stirred memories of yours and stirs you to consider the wonderful interplay of the child and art and the early adolescent in art, and now, of course, the adult in art. Thank you so much, and God bless.